Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime Live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast. So Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. So it was just a tall, skinny cupboard and she put me in the cupboard and locked me in there and it was just dusty and, you know, really hot because it was Darwin and nothing was air-conditioned 
And she locked me in there for six hours. That six hours in the cupboard really broke something in my brain. Sarah spent decades explaining her unpredictable and self-destructive behaviour to people as a consequence of one terrible year of bullying in primary school. Her abuser wasn't another child, they were shocked to learn, but her principal, who more shockingly happened to be an elderly Catholic nun. But while Sarah tried to overcome the trauma of that experience and of one terrible incident in particular by talking about it with friends and seeking counselling, it wasn't until she heard a line in a true crime podcast while driving her car that she realised the one detail she'd always kept to herself was the thing that was preventing her from healing. Sarah contacted us at Australian True Crime because she wants to share what happened after she pulled her car over to the side of the road that day. She wants to share her story in case even one of you hears this true crime podcast and is set free the way she has been. We begin this conversation with that life-changing moment in Sarah's car. That was a really big pivotal moment in my life. So I was driving to work a few years ago and listening to a true crime podcast, of course. I was listening to an ABC podcast called Trace. Yes. About the murder of um, a Melbourne woman called Maria James in 1982. I was listening to that podcast and it was obviously very distressing and very moving, but no more so than any of the other terrible stories we listen to when we love true crime podcasts. But something that the um, the host said just hit me like a like it was a punch in the chest and she said, that the average length of time that it takes most people to disclose these crimes uh, is 33 years. Yeah, that was a, a fact that came out of the Royal Commission. Yeah, and it really took my breath away. It was the first time I'd heard that number and I had to pull over because I realised I was a part of that statistic and for me on that day that I listened to that podcast, it was 38 years and I still hadn't disclosed what had happened to me. And I thought I'm part of that statistic and um, I just realised in that moment that I needed to tell someone. So I sat on the side of the road and had a big panic attack and uh, had a big cry and then just Googled. I Googled, you know, lawyers, Catholic. We came up with a name and I called the first name that came up in the Google search and it was a lawyer and she took my call and she told me about the National Redress Scheme and so I told my story. So had you never spoken about it to anyone, no friends, family, partners? So I'd told half my story a lot of times. So in 1982 I was um, going to a Catholic primary school in Darwin and there was a nun there, the principal. She was a very old old lady and she was an old school nun and um, she just hated me on sight and she tortured me the whole year. She just, the things she would do were just so cool and I think about now, you know, do, behaving in that way to anyone, let alone a 12-year-old, 11, 12-year-old child. The school was segregated so the boys at lunchtime could go and play in the oval and kick a footy around 
and the girls had to stay in the concrete courtyard within the four buildings of the school where they could keep an eye on us. And one day a week, we had to literally go on our hands and knees with wire brushes and scrub the concrete, which was so Dickensian. And then, oh my God. Anyway, our school uniforms would hang in the, you know, the muddy, watery slop. And so I tucked, you know, you tuck your uniform up into the sides of your undies or your scungies because we all had to wear scungies. I remember scungies. Um, For anyone who yeah. doesn't know, they're those, they're like, oh, like running shorts, I guess you could call them. They're like much thicker than undies and you wear them over your undies. Yeah. So no one could see your undies. Yeah. <laughs> remember they were thick and like, what were they even made out of? Like polyester. Oh, polyester. Oh, oh yeah. God. And they were the same colour as your uniform and oh God, yeah. Oh, anyway, so I, you know, tucked my uniform up into the sides while I was on my hands and knees. And the next thing I know, I had a a shoe in my back and she came out and kicked me in the back, face first down into the muddy concrete for, you know, putting my uniform in my undies. And then the next day, which was, um, you know, in the morning, they would have an assembly with all everyone in the school. And so she called me up onto the stage and made me turn around and with the meter ruler that she always had on her, lifted up my school uniform in front of everyone and said, since you want to show everyone you're behind, then let's do it. And she stood there for the, made me stand there for the whole um, assembly with my um, on display. So she used to do things like that to me and it got worse throughout the year she seemed to just have it in for me she didn't like me and she crushed my spirit I started that year as a really confident kid I was an A student really sociable and healthy and by the end of the year and it's really interesting looking at my school photos from that year and the next year you can just see this flatness in my in my expression my eyes just sort of went dead from that that year really broke me. My mum, uh, we were pretty poor and we were living in a little, my brother, my mum and I were living in a little tiny two-person caravan on someone else's front yard. We had no water, no bathroom. My mum had her own issues. She was definitely doing her best, but um, I had a father who lived in Sydney who really wasn't interested. He wasn't paying child support. He wasn't, you know, much of a dad. There was a real shaming of, it seems to me, a shaming of kids from disadvantaged homes. Oh, and divorce, yeah. Absolutely. Because this is the thing I think people don't understand now is they think of it as a private school. But it wasn't like a private school, was it? It was like uh, they would take kids from poor families so you weren't, your parents weren't paying fees. Oh, yeah. But they definitely made it clear to you that you were a charity case that they were doing you a favour for, you know, for God. Yep. Yeah, that was a that was a big thing. The kids, my mum again was one of them obviously, the, the kids from disadvantaged homes and they really took it out of you. Yeah. And made it harder, I guess, for your family to complain about anything. Well, there just wasn't a culture of complaining either. You considered it yourself lucky to be there. You had to be grateful, constantly be grateful. And because my mum had been, you know, she hadn't been working for a number of years and she was divorced and we were a total charity case. I mean, we had people that would leave us baskets of food and shoes and things. I mean, it all sounds so 
so weird now. It sounds like it was 200 years ago, but that's how it was. We were that kind of level of poor. And so my mum had recently got a new job after years of unemployment. And so she was very focused on, you know, trying to keep the little family together. Also, people forget very quickly that back in the day before the all the scandals broke, you didn't step up to nuns and priests. You just didn't. No, there was just ultimate respect. So did you go home and tell them? Did you go home and te- even bother telling your mum that this lady was torturing you? Yeah, I told her everything. Yep. And she'd gone in a couple of times and had meetings with her, but the, I never heard any feedback about those meetings. Obviously, I was a kid and nothing ever changed. It just got worse. So on this particular day, it was early in the day and my teacher intercepted a note. You know, kids were always passing notes in class. She intercepted a note and it had been written by one of the boys and I never received the note. I don't to this day know what was in it, but she called me to the front of the class and grabbed me by the arm. You know, they always grab you by the upper arm and um, marched me around to the principal's office and showed her the note. And so they both stood there with the note for a little while and then the principal, you know, indicated to leave me there and my teacher left. And um, it was an old building and it used to be the, um, uh, you know, the confessional booth. It was built on the back of her office. And it was now being used as just a sort of storage cupboard. So it was just a tall, skinny cupboard. And she put me in the cupboard and locked me in there. And it was just dusty and, you know, really hot because it was Darwin and nothing was air conditioned. And she locked me in there for six hours. I knocked on the door and I yelled and I know that people must have been able to hear me and no one intercepted, no one intervened. And um, that six hours in the cupboard really broke something in my brain. Well, because you didn't even know what was in the note. I mean, hearing you say to this day, I don't know what, what was in the note is devastating to me. <laughs> like, yeah. So imagine a little girl who's like, I don't know why I'm here. Yeah. I mean, that's devastating. Yeah, girls always paid for the sins of the boys. Yeah. And the cupboard was so narrow, I couldn't sort of sit down properly. I couldn't fold my legs enough to be able to sit down and my back hurt and my legs hurt from standing up and it was really dusty in there and sort of greasy from the humidity. The walls were like cobwebby and there was a couple of brooms and things in there and she just wouldn't let me out. I just knocked and yelled and cried. All day I was really thirsty. I ended up wetting myself because, of course, you know, I'd been in there so long, and it was just something just broke in my brain that day. And then when she finally opened the door at the end of the day, uh, she opened the door, and I shouldered her out of the way and ran, and I ran out of her office, and I ran out of the school, and. I ran to my mum's work. She worked a couple of blocks away and um, I just couldn't even talk. When I got into my mum's work, I was just so distressed and couldn't talk. It took her a long time to 
be able to calm me down. She, you know, they gave me a drink of water and when I could finally speak, she worked in a legal office. She was a legal secretary and she went and got one of the lawyers and came back and made me tell him what had, what had happened. And so I told them that I'd been locked in the cupboard all day and she said, well, stay here. And she left me there in the little kitchenette with one of the other ladies and she and this lawyer went out. They went to the school and I don't know what happened, but there was a meeting with uh, the Catholic Education Office in Darwin and the principal was removed from the school that day. Wow, my God. Yeah, and again, I never got any feedback. They never told me what had happened, but I just knew that she was gone and that was it. That was the end. No one ever asked me about what had happened or asked me if I was okay or, you know, it was 1982. There was no understanding of trauma no. or counselling no counseling or debriefing or none of that. And it was just like, okay, well, we'll just get on with life now. Well, we certainly know, uh, you know, historically that the church was very keen to put things behind them very quickly and uh, probably ahead of their time in terms of thinking of uh, potential legal complications, weren't they? I guess they didn't want other parents getting ideas, other kids getting ideas. And for your mum to rock up with a lawyer would have scared them, I would think. So do you know where they moved her to? Did If she was already elderly, did they retire her or did they move her to another school? Or Yeah, no, she was taken out of the education system. She was way overdue for retirement mm. and they had um, the convent was right behind the school. So she just, I don't know, did whatever she did, but she was moved away from kids. She wasn't allowed to work with kids anymore. That was that. And that was the end of that. And you and your mum never spoke about it over the years? I mean, you never said uh, when you got older, whatever happened that day, mum? What, whatever happened when you got there to the school? What, what was said? What was the meeting like? What did she have to say for herself? No, 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 no. I couldn't ever talk about it. But the damage had been done. And the first thing was that I was immediately overnight incredibly claustrophobic. I couldn't go to the dentist. I couldn't get in a lift. I couldn't get on a plane. I couldn't go in a tunnel. And it got worse and worse and worse over the years. I ended up losing teeth uh, because I couldn't go to the dentist. Just couldn't. And yeah, it got worse over the years and impacted my life more and more. And I ended up moving out to the country, so there's no lifts or tunnels here. There's no danger. Um, I lived in Melbourne back in the 20 years ago when they were building the Burnley Tunnel and I had to leave. I couldn't risk the tunnel. It was just too, too terrifying. When people, partners, friends said to you, oh, God, why are you so claustrophobic? Do you know why you are, Sarah? Like, do you have you ever been to counselling about why you're so claustrophobic? Were you able to to tell them why? Did you always know it was that day? Oh, yeah. I talked about being locked in the cupboard all the time. I told everyone. I saw counsellors and psychologists. I had mental health care plans. I did all of that for decades. Right. Okay. So you were prepared to to walk right up to that point, but there was more to the story. 
Yeah, and I just, I had other things that were going on as well. I moved house 62 times over the next 30 years. I had so many jobs, um, so many broken relationships, so much, you know, overnight I'd gone from this delightful, happy, gorgeous kid into, you know, I was doing everything I could to not feel any feelings, whatever drugs were available, whatever um, I was on the pill at age 13. Um, you know, I spiralled when you are self-medicating for trauma and looking for ways to not feel your feelings uh, in that way, then I did all of those things. Today, hopefully parents would look at that and say, oh, some of these are symptoms, classic symptoms of sexual assault. Certainly well, I don't want to, you know, I have to use the word promiscuousness, which is sounds victim blamey, but you know, when a young, very young person suddenly changes their sexual behavior in that way, we now know that that's oftentimes a symptom of a person who's had control of their body taken away from them by an adult. Back in the day, people didn't know that and they they thought, oh, teenage girls can just go off the rails. I don't know what's happened to my daughter. This happens sometimes, you know, she's gone crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's hysterical. She's crazy. She's out of control. Oh, and then there were threats. We're going to make you a ward of the state and oh. you're out of control. And then I had to change schools several times because of my behaviour in the schools. Yeah, so I had, you know, this lifetime of just not understanding my own seeking help for mental health stuff but never never getting anywhere um changing psychologists and counselors constantly um not being able to regulate my emotions having you know I'm estranged from my entire family not being understood needing to be loved but pushing people away and all of those classic self-harm behaviours that are not visible. You're trying to do the right things as well as the self-destructive behaviours. You're trying to sort it out by going to counselling and doing the quote-unquote right things, but even in that context you're not quite stepping over the precipice of telling the whole story. Yeah, absolutely. So it was that day when I was driving to work and listening to that podcast that I realised I needed to tell the story. And I hadn't, it wasn't like a recovered memory, but I realised that I'd I'd never told the story and I'd been keeping it from myself. Not that I had forgotten it, but just that I'd suppressed it so deeply and so vigorously that... I'd forgotten that that was the thing that that really happened. And so what had happened was that she had assaulted me in the minutes before she locked me in the cupboard. She assaulted me and called me a slut, a 12-year-old child, in the moments before she locked me in the cupboard. For hours. Yeah. And to not, I didn't know what had happened. I didn't understand what that was that had happened and she was a nun and she was, you know, holy in the eyes of God and she was our protector and our teacher and I just didn't understand and I thought it, whatever had happened must have been my fault 
and I must have got it wrong. Like I must have remembered it wrong or didn't really understand. And and how sexually literate were you at 12? Like how much did you know about sex and sex acts? Not much. No. I still thought that, you know, the solid gold dancers were like the height of sexiness. Yes. I didn't know about no. <laughs> sex things. Um, and we didn't get sex education. Yeah, there was there was not no understanding at all. I just knew that what she had done was it did, just didn't feel right and I didn't know why it had happened. And I wasn't sure if it had really happened in the way that I remembered. And then I was in a cupboard for six hours thinking I was going to die. After the break, we hear from Sarah what the National Redress Scheme is all about from a survivor's perspective. We'll hear how engaging with it is different to going to court and how the experience has changed Sarah's life. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I just want to sort of acknowledge the other elements that must have made it harder to believe, just that even today we don't acknowledge really that women can be sex offenders. It's very hard for us to believe that women can be sex offenders. So for you as a 12-year-old Catholic girl, very innocent about sex at all, to be sexually assaulted by a woman must have been bizarre 
The, the woman is a nun. The woman is an extremely elderly nun. I mean, all of these elements must have added to the almost dreamlike, nightmare-like way that it worked in your brain and then to be locked up for six hours alone with it. You know, I just needed to acknowledge how weird it would have been to a 12-year-old brain. Yeah, and there was the assault, which was dreadful, but there was also just this absolute hatred. She hated me. She called me a slut with this spite in her voice and she looked me in the eye when she said it with absolute hatred. And so I just I I just pushed it down in my brain. I couldn't process it. I couldn't make sense of it. And I certainly couldn't tell anyone. I didn't think anyone would believe me. Who would believe a child? They would think I was making it up and don't be ridiculous as if a as if a sister. I knew it had happened, but I just second guessed myself for decades. And I suppose did you think the rest of the story was bad enough? Like you know, she locked me in a cupboard for six hours. Can it just can it just be that? Isn't that bad enough? Can I just tell you that part of the story? Do I have to? Yeah, because I can talk about that bit. Yeah, I can talk about that, and I can go to, you know, desensitization therapy, and I you could put me in a lift, and I could go up and down the lift a million times, and you know, I can understand how I might be able to make sense of that of the locking in a cupboard, but I'll never be able to make sense of what she did before that. So I just couldn't, how could I tell anyone about it? I just couldn't, I couldn't admit it to myself. It was like I'd locked it in a tiny little lockbox, in a cupboard, in a filing cabinet, in a room, in a basement, in a, and it was always there, but I just couldn't ever go there. And so when you did tell the lawyer that you called, when you had to find the words to describe, I mean, because I know through these processes it, you have to, you know, in in detail, how and how long did it take you to be able to do that? So we had several meetings over several months, all by phone. This also all happened during COVID. And we worked up to it and she would say, you know, tell me as much as you can. And she would book two hour phone calls at a time. She had explained to me about the national redress scheme and what that meant as opposed to, you know, making charges, pressing charges against someone who was no longer alive for a crime that had happened 38 years prior in a state, you know, several states away, that that would have been a really long drawn out process. And I would have had to have stood up in front of strangers and repeatedly told my story and been cross-examined. And I just knew I wouldn't ever be able to face that. So it seemed like the redress scheme was the best option for me because you don't have to go through any of that process. And so I had decided to proceed with that. And she was just slow and patient and gentle with me. She recorded our calls as well so that she could write the affidavit from what I put in the calls and make my statement from that. Um, and it probably took six months for me to tell the full story. And I was seeing a psychologist weekly at the time. I still didn't tell them what was going on. Wow. Yeah, and then she wrote the affidavit and it took me another three or four months to be able to read it. So she sent it to me, but I just couldn't read it. 
And she was really gentle and she said, okay, so, you know, the, the scary bits are on pages 17 and 18. She would warn me, you know, and it's five paragraphs. And she was just really caring and uh, very gentle and patient with me, which was exactly perfect. This is what she does. This is all she does is redress claims. My goodness. She's very, very good at it. I just am so lucky I happened to get the exact right person that day. Isn't my that amazing? Search. This is yeah. the lady you Googled in your car on the side of the road. You've given me goosebumps about how that was meant to be. Like, yeah, you know, that's amazing. Yeah, so she, um, you know, stepped me through every step of the process. We wrote the affidavit. It came time to submit the paperwork, the claim, and there's a, um, you don't have to deal with the scheme if you don't want to because it's just a public service department in Canberra. But it seems like for once they got they got it right. <laughs> I just sound so cynical, but for once it seems to work in favour of victims, of victims who are, of course, going to be suffering terrible trauma. So it's not requiring you to front up and tell the story over and over and over again in front of strangers and all that. It seems like a scheme that is built around victims. It is. Um, it cl- claims are still investigated and you still have to provide an affidavit um, and the institutions have to opt in and the compensation that's awarded if your claim is proven or if they believe your claim is probably about 5% what you might be awarded if you went through a court system. Yeah. So it's pretty nominal, um, but it's, yes, it's still a way for people to, to make a claim and get some kind of resolution. If it's okay, I'd like to just talk a little bit to the actual process as well. Yeah, because please. That, that was also really challenging. And if there's anyone listening who's thinking about going through the process, I would really like to be very clear about the fact that it is re-victimising or it re-victimised me. I was really lucky that I had a fantastic lawyer who helped me and supported me through it, but also dealing with the scheme you know, I had to sign paperwork to say that I wanted them to only have contact with my lawyer. I didn't want them to contact me directly. And even with providing stat decks and affidavits and access to my medical records, access to my psych records, you know, signing my life away, they still insisted on speaking to me directly because they wanted me to tell them that I wanted them to talk to my lawyer. Oh, right. It's just petty bureaucratic nonsense. Right, okay. Arbitrary, you know, stuff that they do that just, and having that phone call, we had to schedule that phone call eight weeks in advance and even something like that was really challenging. And then you've got the wait and the wait can be up to two or three years for a decision. My my claim took nine months, which is really fast. And that, that wait, I mean, this the other thing about, the re-traumatisation of people is that, yeah, if you've not spoken, you've not told anyone for 38 years, then bringing this back into your life, back into your consciousness at this level and having to live with it for nine months or two years is a lot, isn't it? Oh, I couldn't work. Yeah. I was I was definitely spiralling. I was in a really um, bad place mentally. I was getting a lot of support and a lot of help uh, and I was staying in bed six days out of seven because what if they come back and say no we don't believe you or no that never happened or but it's not as bad as what other people went through or 
what if they gaslight me? What if they don't believe me? What if, what if, what if, what if? One day I got a letter from them. I got the parcel from them and it sat on the table for four days. I just, I was having a full-blown panic attack for four days and I couldn't open it. And then my beautiful lawyer, Catherine, called me and she said, I've just received it. And I said, yeah, I've got mine too. She said, have you opened it? I said, and I just couldn't open it. And she went, Sarah, it's really good. It's really good. And she read it to me and it was really good. (laughs) And then she said, the claim was processed so quickly because that had so many other claims and I was telling the same story that so many other people had said. And she said, Sarah, there were many before you, but you were the last because you spoke up that day. Oh, my God. So this nun had been attacking other girls and you and your mum stopped her. Oh, Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I think about that moment so often when, you know, my lawyer said that there were many before you, but you were the last. And that gives me so much peace in knowing that just being brave enough to run that day. And even though I didn't tell the full story, I told enough of the story on that day you know, to stop her. The reason that they had already opted into the redress scheme was because of her. Oh, I thought I didn't realise it was that sort of um, localised. I thought when you said they had to opt in, I thought you meant like the Catholic Church had opted in. Do you mean like the the school or the diocese or whatever? No, individual uh, institutions, like the actual schools. Yeah, and there's a list. You can look it up on the National Redress Scheme website of every institution that has opted in. And if they haven't opted in, that doesn't mean that you can't make a claim. But the fact that they had already opted in when I uh, lodged my claim indicated that there probably had been previous claims. I just don't want to discourage anyone. I've I've given my experience of you know, going through um, making an application to the redress scheme. And that was my experience. I don't want to discourage anyone. If anyone out there is uh, wants more information or, you know, is thinking about going through the process, for me it was 100% worth it. And it was two years of, you know, um, really high stress and trauma to get an outcome. But the outcome for me has just been life-changing. I am definitely... Uh, would not discourage anyone from going through the process. Just having the information up front about the fact that the process can be pretty challenging, but no more challenging than what we've always we've all been living with for however long and for a lot of people it's decades. And there's um three possible streams that come back. You can have um, financial compensation, you can have free access to psychology support of your choice and you could have an apology and I was awarded all three so I got um, some compensation 
which I used to build a very big chicken coop. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> and I got uh, the full amount up to $5,000 of um, psychology services. And I got an apology, which is something where you can access it for, I think, up to five years after the award date where a representative of the, of the institution will sit down with you and apologise if that's what you want. So I haven't accessed that. I don't know how helpful that would be for me. Yeah. But uh, I used about half of the um, uh, funding towards psych services and it's changed my life. That was a year ago. Yeah, it has completely changed my life. I'm in a job that I love. I'm building a new friendship group. I don't have that anger. I don't have that unpredictability. I don't have that nine out of ten anxiety every minute of my life. I'm creative. I'm making art. I'm so overcommitted with projects and social events and I'm the best version of myself that I've ever been in my entire life. It's incredible the um the peace that I've had from having this outcome. Wow. So how often do you think about the entire thing now compared to five years ago before you were disclosed, before you had started this process? Well, I live really near Ballarat, <laughs> which is the epicenter yes. of the George L. Um, of his diocese and those claims. And every school and every church in Ballarat is covered in ribbons. I don't know if you've ever travelled through Ballarat. but I do. I'm very familiar with the Loud Fence project, yeah. Yeah, and there are ribbons just and they are constantly replenished. Those victims are never forgotten. And I drive past them every day and I send them love every day. And I remember everybody, everyone's story, every building that has a story. And there's still lots of them standing. And I think about every child and every new claim that comes out, you know, that we're hearing about in Canada with the schools where the nuns and, and Ireland, you know, that where they tortured children and murdered children. Uh, so... The more I hear about it and the more it becomes pretty standard, you know, 40 years ago, there was no such thing as childhood institutionalised childhood sexual abuse, especially by the Catholic Church. And now it's understood broadly and widely around the world that that is a thing that has happened and is still happening. Yep. Um, so I feel peace in myself. I'm living my absolute best life right now and I have a quality of life and a clarity. I'm sleeping. <laughs> um, I have an incredibly supportive partner who was there for all of my worst years and is now here for my best years. So I'm really, really grateful that I have that person in my life, you know, um, who stuck by me when it was really hard. And um, I'm proud of myself for telling my story and feel really lucky that I had all the right people around me to help me get to that that place. Nationalredress.gov.au is the official website of the National Redress Scheme and there's a link on the landing page that will help you check to see if any Australian institution you're interested in has already joined the scheme. 
There's lots of other information there as well. Sarah's lawyer's name is Catherine Emony, and the firm she works for is Madden's, based in Warrnambool. As always, though, bravehearts.org.au and 1800RESPECT are excellent starting points if you want to disclose historical sexual abuse and you're not sure where to begin. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800RESPECT.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 139276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.